Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 26. As the countrifying process of What's-His-Name continued, so did the happifying process of Josh. Monica and I had become inseparable, and it was clear that I favored her positive vibes and unconditional love over far-fetched talks of being rap stars and comparing stories of how fucking miserable Rue and I were. I had lived in the same apartment in Crown Heights for a long time. The neighborhood was relatively unchanged for the past 50 years, mostly populated by Hasidic Jewish families walking around looking like they were straight out of Poland in the 1930s. I was a bachelor and my apartment looked like a bachelor's pad. I regularly straightened but rarely ever cleaned and the dust balls that had gathered in corners and behind furniture resembled animals. The only food you could order in Crown Heights was pizza or Chinese and to do laundry or go grocery shopping you'd have to walk an annoying 7 or 8 minutes. My building was a 45-minute subway ride to the city and far from anything of interest. Rather than feeling like home, it felt isolated and living there felt like it was subconsciously keeping my life in an indefinite state of monotony. Rue continued to battle the same emotions I did. He began talking about moving back to North Carolina again and it started to sound more real. From the beginning, he said that he would never end up in New York because it just didn't make long-term financial sense. He wasn't wrong. In North Carolina, he could buy a house for nothing and sit on his porch drinking beer and listening to crickets all night if he wanted to. But I never had plans of going back, and my relationship with Monica was spurring me to write off North Carolina as home. With three CDs full of brand new sounds from Gifted, Rue began spending a fair amount of energy shopping his beats. Getting production placement was far easier than getting an artist signed, at least in theory, because a signed rapper or A&R just had to like a beat. The producer didn't have to look or sound a certain way or be a certain age. They just had to have one good beat, and from what I heard over the last year, Gifted had hundreds. Rue stayed in contact with Jeff from Jive and worked diligently to get Gifted on any rap album or remix that he could, albeit to no avail. Rue had no computer, so he and I shared an iTunes account. One day I noticed that he had uploaded roughly 50 beats to my computer without telling me. I found it odd, but thought little of it. Instead, I connected my iPod to sync it and spent the next few days ingesting them. By the third day, I found myself drawn to one in particular and I couldn't get it out of my head. I had to have it. It needed to be mine. Without mentioning it to Rue, I began listening to the beat on repeat until the lyrics started to flow. I found myself walking through Union Square when I noticed a young man walking as if he had practiced how to do it in the mirror at home. It looked so unnatural that it made me uncomfortable, and just then, it came to me. Swagger. It was the word du jour. Popularized by Jay-Z and adopted by every rapper in the South, Swagger described your cool, the way you carried yourself, your clothes, the way you wore them, and the way you rap. I had been calling my style East Coast Rap with a Down South Swagger for about a year, and what better way to capitalize on the most popular slang term than to write a song about it? With the beat playing in my earbuds, the chorus came to me. You ain't got no swagger, bread you walk like you practiced it. Walk like you practiced it. Walk like you practiced it. You ain't got no swagger. You ain't got no swagger. You ain't got no swagger, bread. You ain't got no swagger. It was brilliantly terrible, and that's how I knew it would be big. The hip-hop angel on my shoulder was saying no, but the commercially southern devil with the golden grill was saying, Fuck yeah, shout it, do that now! 
I almost felt disgusted with what I had come up with, and somehow, that's how I knew it was right. Once I had it mastered, I jotted it down in my Palm Trio and texted Rue. Yo, I got the next hit, I wrote. Oh yeah? He replied. Yup, to one of those new gifted beats. A 10 minute pause ensued. What beats? He replied. The ones you put in my iTunes and forgot to tell me about, I wrote. Another pause occurred, but this one seemed to last half an hour. Which beat? Rue asked. Number one, I love that shit, I replied. Another 20 minute pause, which made me think the conversation was over. We need to talk about that one, he replied. Nah, it's dope, you'll love it, trust, I wrote. I was gonna shop that one, Rue replied. I was befuddled. Frankly, I didn't even know how to respond. The single best perk about Rue managing Gifted was that we had an unlimited supply of free beats. He had pitched the management idea by assuring me that I'd have my pick of the litter at all times, and now he was going back on his word. I was pissed, but I knew I could sell Rue on the idea if I could just get him to listen to the song. I finished it fast so I could do so. The next night, Rue and I had plans to get together so we could discuss swagger. I got home from work at 6.30 and put the beat on repeat so I could practice it before debuting it for Rue. At 7 o'clock, I texted him to see if he was ready. I'm having drinks in the city, he replied. You coming back anytime soon? I asked. Not sure. Probably be home late. I had canceled plans with Monica to conduct this unnecessary mini-meeting, so I was annoyed. The next night, I was having a glass of wine at Monica's apartment in the Upper East Side while she made dinner and received a text from Rue. Ready to come upstairs and do that song for me? My stomach dropped because I knew the conflict was imminent. Nah, man, I'm with Mon, I replied. Fifteen minutes went by with no response, which was classic Rue speak for, I'm upset. Once again, always trying my best to avoid conflict, I texted him a second time. We had plans for last night and you didn't make it. We didn't have plans for tonight though. Finally, I got a response. Obviously, if I couldn't make it last night, that means I wanted to do it tonight. He replied, sounding perturbed. You couldn't make it or you didn't make it, I replied obnoxiously. With my night temporarily ruined by anxiety and conflict, I texted Rue again. How was I supposed to know that you'd want to do it tonight? I put my plans off last night, so I did them tonight instead. The conversation was over, but the disagreement wasn't. I couldn't believe that our relationship had gotten to this point. It only made me want to invest less time into it and more time into the one with Monica, who never stressed me out, tried to make me feel bad about myself, or questioned what I chose to do with my free time. On the third night, Rue and I got together and I mustered up enough energy to present swagger to him correctly. I could tell that he loved it, but he seemed to be holding back a bit on expressing his emotions. Yes, though, but I was going to shop that beat like I told you. That's why I didn't tell you about the beats yet, because I wanted to figure out which ones I was going to shop and which ones you could have. Yeah, but why would you hold out on beats from me? Wasn't that the point of you managing Gifted in the first place? I said. In the beginning, yes, but now I'm trying to use his beats to get us in a better place. I feel like I could get us a production deal and then bring you into the fold as an artist, Rue replied. I understood, but I had grown tired of listening to Big Plans for the 400,000th time. I wasn't down to play second fiddle to someone who was just a client, but I needed to try and get my way and restore some normalcy to our relationship. Okay, listen, I said. Continue to shop the beat, and in the meantime, I'll just record the song and we'll see what happens. If you're going to record it, then I'm not going to shop it, he said. Fine, don't shop it, I don't care. But you know it's a big record, I said. Yeah, I told you I like it. I just wish you would have asked me before you started writing to any of the beats. He agreed that it was a good song and suggested I record it at James's studio. I agreed and Rue set a session up for the following Saturday. This would be my time to finally show James that I could take direction, then be Southern. 
I practiced the song feverishly, and by the time Saturday came around, I knew Swagger like it was my phone number. Rue and I made plans to meet near James's studio, but 10 minutes before the session, he still hadn't arrived, so I texted him. It wasn't like Rue to be late, so I was concerned. Yo, where you at? I wrote. I'm handling some shit right now. Just go on ahead and I'll try to make it in a few hours. It'll give you time to impress him. Now I was confused. Why would Rue be mysteriously absent from our most important recording session to date? It didn't make sense, but I did as he said and proceeded to the session alone. I arrived at James's townhouse and he led me upstairs to the studio. Rue had already emailed the instrumental tracks to James so he could get them in order and mixed before I added my vocals. It saved time and allowed the focus to be on me. It was good thinking on his part. The studio reeked of cigarette smoke and the ashtray that sat on James's giant recording console was overflowing with butts, a few of which still leaked a small amount of smoke into the air. You ready to go? James asked before he walked me into his tiny wooden recording booth. He meticulously adjusted the microphone to the perfect height for me, then retired back to his chair to press a few buttons, adjust a few levels, and of course, smoke. Okay, let's do it, James yelled through the soundproof glass as I stood there silently and moderately uncomfortable. I had done this so many times before, hundreds of times in fact, but today I wasn't so into it. Rue wasn't there and I didn't understand why. Maybe it had nothing to do with me, but I convinced myself that it did. There was no real creative vibe in the room and the scene, though familiar, was incredibly foreign. I struggled to find my swagger in the booth. James tried to play session conductor by attempting to give me generic recording tips that sounded as if they were straight from a textbook and I was kind of perturbed. Hey dude, James said, you know the part where you say, what's his name, what's his name, say it for me one more time. I think you should go, what's my name, what's his name, say it for me one more time. Nah, I'm good, I said to avoid conflict. It was arguably my greatest skill. Eventually I found my way. I banged out three verses, ad-libs, a chorus, and all the necessary layering. Within an hour of my arrival to James's, the song was nearly complete except for a few customary hours of engineering. Like all good engineers, James obsessed about each track, the levels, and the quality of the recording. As we listened to the finished vocal arrangement, James would make comments about certain parts of the song, how I delivered each line in specific lyrics. What James didn't understand is that though he was probably a world-class violinist, I was a world-class rapper with years of practice. A song was never just a song to me, and I spent the same amount of effort perfecting each piece of work as if it was to be performed at the presidential inauguration. Not Trump's though. James's words annoyed me more and more as they came out. With each suggestion, I got angrier and angrier, and by the time I stepped out of the booth, I had shut down socially. As much as I hated conflict, I hated to be uncomfortable even more and had a lifelong battle of attempting not to wear my emotions on my sleeve. Once I detected discomfort, my brain shut down like a child, almost refusing to communicate in a mute-like fashion. I was by myself in an unfamiliar studio with an unfamiliar engineer. I was recording what was probably the most commercially relevant song of my entire 18-year rap career and honestly, I felt really stupid. I had spent my entire adult life trying to chase connections and cater towards their tastes. I pretended to like people who I thought could potentially benefit me and more recently, I was making music that was so far out of my realm of artistic expression that I may as well have been writing country power ballads. My adult life was devoid of anything permanent or genuine, but over the last few months my relationship with Monica had shown me an alternative. Happiness, understanding, positivity, bliss, acceptance, reality, truth, optimism. 
These were words I had all but forgotten. They were feelings I knew as a child when I had nothing else to stress out about other than whether or not this would be the day I'd finally rescue Princess Toadstool in Super Mario Brothers. Now I was 30 years old, not a child or a teenager, not even a young man or young adult anymore. My focus was on the wrong thing. The question was, how much longer would I let this go on? I left the studio silent and indistinct, not giving a damn in the world about what James thought about me as an artist or as a person. I was past the notion of impressing him for my potential benefit and I could no longer pretend to care. The next weekend I got a text from Rue to go buy James's and pick up a copy of the finished product. I was in Penn Station after gallivanting around Manhattan and drinking iced coffee with the love of my life. I was thinking about music as much as I thought about having an impromptu glucose test. It was out of the way for me to go to James's, but to avoid conflict, I bitched to Monica about how I didn't feel like it, then agreed to the task. That night, Rue and I got together in my apartment to listen to the final product. The mix sounded amazing, and my apathetic attitude towards the session was fortunately unapparent. Both of us knew we were sitting on some shit. All we would have to do now is massage all of our DJ friends over the phone, mass-produce the song, and promote it until we couldn't see straight. And this time it would be even easier because of how I approached the song. I had recently read an article about how to write a hit song. Yes, I was that calculated. So Swagger's entire third verse was dedicated to naming all the various states that quote, had that swagger, aka all the states where we knew DJs. This is a trick used by almost every pop songwriter on the planet and helps to make the listener feel like the song is for them. Whether it's Mariah Carey, Mary J. Blige, or Beyonce, all have songs with the words, this is for my ladies who, or fellas if you're with me. My equivalent would be, It was the worst piece of shit I had ever written in my life, but commercially the most perfect. The line between pop and hip-hop was no longer being blurred in my music as I had seemingly made my choice. A night or two later, I was at Rue's house hanging out and talking about our swagger. Yo, I gotta hand it to you. You did your thing on that joint, he said. Thanks. I knew you'd like it, I replied. I've been thinking, though. Swagger gotta be the one, Rue said. I agreed. No, I'm saying it has to, like, if this shit doesn't take off, I think I'm done, he said. Done? Like, done done? I said. Yeah, like, done. We've been at this shit a long time, and if this one doesn't pop, I think I'm done with this situation. Rue said it so nonchalantly that his tone didn't match the message. In some ways I was shocked, but in other ways I was relieved. My stomach didn't drop like it normally did when I got sudden and uncomfortable news. I also wasn't blown away with anger or excitement. I was just present and I sat mum for a few more minutes before quietly retreating to my apartment. I watched TV for a few hours, checked my email and went to bed. As potentially earth-shattering as the news was, I acted like nothing happened. 
The following weekend, I had studio time scheduled with Charlie to record Zoo, another new song in line with Swagger and the rest of my down south cachet. Zoo was a little harder. It felt silly, but I wrote what came to mind. It sounded good, but I was fully invested in my new sound, though my conscience was not. Now I was not only Southern, but also had gangsta lyrics. I had truly found my stride. When I met Rue at the studio, he had a girl with him. I found it ironic that he had just scolded me for bringing Monica to a recording session just a few weeks earlier and wondered if he did it to spite me. The only difference was that I didn't care. I was confident in my music making abilities and an uninvited guest only gave me a reason to deliver a better performance. Besides, my focus had shifted to thinking about Monica and how swimmingly our relationship had been going for the last 9 or 10 months. I had also gotten a new job as an on-site real estate agent. I began earning a salary, benefits, and the stability was keeping me in great spirits. I knocked the song out in my usual rapid speed, then Rue and I went our separate ways. A few nights later, Rue called and told me to come to his apartment to talk about swagger and our progress, if any. My trek up the one flight of stairs felt a lot like walking into class without having done my homework. I knew I'd get in trouble, but at this point it was too late and I almost didn't care. So how's it going with Swagger? He asked. Fine, I guess, I replied. You been adding people on MySpace and calling the DJs? Rue said. Nah, man, I said nonchalantly. You been emailing cats to MP3 at least? Nah, not really, I said, feeling awkward and with my head down. I gotta say what, I really don't feel like your heart is in it anymore. And if you're not willing to work as hard as I am on this one, then I'm not trying to fuck with it. I sat there silent and unresponsive as Rue berated me. You hear what I'm saying to you? I'm not gonna fuck with this anymore if your heart's not in it. Again, I said nothing. So I'm asking you right now, is your heart in this shit or are you done? Every other large decision in my life had come with hours of stress, anxiety, and laying out pros and cons in my head before I'd ever thought to make a decision. Not once in my adult life had I ever done anything without overanalyzing, worrying, and questioning every aspect of every decision I was ever faced with. But right there, right then, I did. And without even considering what I was faced with or the ramifications of my answer, I spoke from the heart. Yeah, man, I'm done. I got up from Rue's couch as if I was stepping out of my own body. I walked back downstairs to my apartment without a single word, thought, or facial expression. I called Monica, who thus far, I had never shared any inclination of quitting music with. I told her what I had just done and she was shocked. Hell, I was shocked. She asked if I was sure and I told her that I was. Once I had admitted it to myself, out loud, I knew that I had done the right thing. Not for Monica, not for us, not for Rue, but for me. I was 30 years old and instead of being like every other struggling artist I had ever known or heard of, I left my pursuit of music on my own recognizance rather than running my life completely into the ground and leaving myself with no other options. I didn't exactly feel like I had broken out of any shackles, but deep down I knew now that I was free. If nothing else, I could be my own age, my own name, and speak with my own accent. I didn't want to be famous anymore, I just wanted to be me.